Okayeri, I'm Michelle from Mike Rising, and I'll be one of your hosts for this episode of the Yonsei Podcast. As part of the Tadaima Virtual Pilgrimage series, we're bringing you roundtable discussions with young adults involved in and around the Japanese American community to honor our community's history and explore its implications today. Hi, everyone. I'm Yoko, and I'll be your other host for today's episode. And today we'll be exploring this week's theme, which is End of War to Redress, by specifically focusing on the role of Nikkei women in the redress movement, and then discussing more broadly the experiences and contributions of Nikkei women throughout our community's history. I think this topic is one that isn't discussed nearly enough, and this is a great week to highlight women because of how instrumental they were for the redress movement, but also because I feel like as we near the end of Tadaima, it's all about connecting the dots and recognizing that those who came before and paved the way for the redress era activists also paved the way for us and made us who we are today. Um, so I'm super excited to dive in. So let's get started with introducing our guests. Our first guest today is Mia Summers. Mia is a Gosei femme who is a settler on the territory of the Huchun Chuchenyo speaking Ohlone land. They are an organizer with Nikkei Resisters, Nikkei Decolonization Tour, and Japantown for Justice. Thank you so much for being here, Mia. Thank you for having me. Our second guest is Nina Wallace. Nina is the communications coordinator at Densho and a Yonsei who believes in the change-making power of personal story and community history. She has led public presentations and classroom discussions on the historical legacy of Japanese-American incarceration and published writings in HuffPost, NBC Asian America, The Seattle Times, Yes Magazine, and Discover Nikkei. Thank you for joining us, Nina. Hi. Thank you. So to start, we'd kind of just love to hear a little bit more about maybe your involvement in the community and what really brought you to the work that you currently do. So maybe, Mia, if you'd like to go first. Yeah. Okay. Such a broad question. And I think it really is related to the work you all are talking about and kind of recognizing our path as a way moving forward. So yeah, as mentioned, I'm part of three spaces, specifically in the Nikkei community, Nikkei Resisters. That's an intergenerational coalition of activists. That organization really started in response to the Trump election. But I think in working with community, we recognize the need to pivot, not only like resisting Trump, but also knowing that there are many systems of oppression that exist before him and will even exist after him, right? And so knowing that it's not just good enough to focus on an individual person, but looking at systemic change. And then similarly, that work led me to Nikkei Decolonization Tour and sort of the belief that it is important for us as people in the Nikkei diaspora. So Nikkei, I use it I prefer using it more than Japanese American um, in holding, right? We have very a lot more experiences than is defined by the America nation state. But recognizing that we need to understand what's happening in Japan and that there are so many parallels to Japan's own rise of right-wing fascism. They have horrible also immigration practices that are analogous, if not worse, to the United States. And so knowing that we can you know, find those connections in our identity to build global solidarity. And then more recently have joined Japanese Americans for Justice as kind of a call for the Japantown community in San Francisco to really think about their positionality and power as a community and how they can be uplifting the demands for the movement of Black lives. And I actually really 
came into this work when I was, after I came back from college and I started organizing the Bay Area on different Asian American spaces and different Asian American issues, but never feel really feeling like I belonged in the community and just felt like I was too radical or too out there. But then I actually got to meet different aunties, you know, old school organizers who a lot of them had been in the redress movement. And they really showed me that there was a way to have radical progressive politics and be Nikkei. And so it's through their guidance and their like leadership and their, their willingness to teach me and hold me and be thought partners with me. That's helped me kind of get in the movement today. And that's awesome that you had kind of those mentors to be there for you and kind of allow you to explore that space. Definitely. Definitely. I'm so grateful to them. (laughs) Awesome. And maybe Nina, if you'd love to share a little bit more, that'd be great. Yeah. So I am communications coordinator at Denshow. For folks who aren't familiar with Denshow, it's just a kind of digital archives, history, education project. And yeah, kind of speaking of legacies of Nikkei women, I actually got involved with Denshow because my mom heard that they were hiring someone um, kind of right after I (laughs) was graduating from college. It's like, oh, you need a job. They're hiring an intern. You should go apply for this. So yeah, I kind of started out just transcribing interviews and yeah, just kind of spending a lot of time with the oral histories and um, listening to those first person narratives. Um, And yeah, just kind of over the years, sort of worked myself into this niche of doing the, you know, sort of communications and community engagement work. And yeah, and I think just kind of being in Seattle and sort of part of the community here, I'm also part of our Seattle chapter of Studio for Solidarity and kind of outside of my role with Densho um, and involved in some kind of anti-displacement, anti-gentrification organizing in our local Chinatown. So yeah, just very excited to be here with y'all. Thank you both so much for sharing. I think it provides some really great context to hear where you guys are coming from as we move into the discussion. So this topic I think is unique in that we do have to provide more backstory and history than we usually do in these episodes, just because not enough people know about the role of women in the redress movement and just women's histories in general are often not remembered as much. So Nina, I know that you have very extensive knowledge about all of this, and I've learned a ton from reading your stuff in Densho. So could you tell us a little more, give us some backstory about women in redress And specifically, like, I didn't even know until pretty recently that the entire basis for the case for redress was found by a Japanese American woman. So yeah, could you could you give our audience a little bit of context for what women did to make redress happen? Yeah, I mean, like every single social movement ever in history, I think women really were the backbone of the redress movement. And I think like, I don't know, just kind of as a side note to that, I feel like just anytime you find yourself in an organizing space that does not have women or femmes in it, just like be wary and maybe get out of there because that's not how history works and that's not how organizing works. But yeah, I mean, so you kind of alluded to Auntie Aiko Herzog Yoshinaga, who is, I think, really like a big part of the reason why we have redress and why it was successful. So kind of, so there's kind of 
I think like Aiko and then um, another woman, Michi Nishiyora Weglin, are really kind of the, um, I wouldn't say leaders because I feel like, you know, there's so many leaders in that movement, but they are two of the people who really contributed a lot and yeah, just made it possible for readers to happen. And so, yeah, so Michi Nishiura Weglin and Aiko Herzogoshi Naga really dedicated like years of their lives to compiling research to support redress. So like starting in kind of the late 60s after, you know, seeing some of these big, you know, like ethnic power movements and the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and kind of being inspired by all of that activism and organizing that was happening, Michi started doing a bunch of research into the government archives and trying to find out, you know, like what really happened during World War II and, you know, also in the years before World War II when the government was uh, doing surveillance on Japanese Americans and, yeah, just kind of trying to tell the real story. Um, And so she published this book, Years of Infamy, which people actually called the Bible of the Redress Movement because it was so valuable. And the information that she covered was just such strong evidence for the case that, yeah, the government really did owe reparations to Japanese Americans. And so kind of pretty quickly after Years of Infamy came out, Aiko Herzog Yoshinaga, who you know, was another Nisei woman, um, both of them were incarcerated during World War II. So Aiko Herzog Yoshinaga started doing, you know, something similar where she would just put in like 50, 60 hour weeks, um, just combing through the government archives and the national, in the national archives, looking for proof that, you know, what basically proof of what we already knew, which is that, you know, it was wrong. It was unconstitutional. There was no, you know, quote unquote military necessity. Uh, And so she found this kind of smoking gun piece of evidence, which was this report that the government had created during the war and then subsequently tried to destroy all copies of it because they knew that in this report they'd created that, you know, they said specifically that there was no military necessity for the forced removal or for the um, incarceration. And so she found the last remaining copy of that report. um, And that was kind of the basis for the case for reparations. What a badass. I know that, Mia, you said that you have been mentored by people who have been, who are involved in the redress movement. Do you want to tell us a little bit about anyone you know who worked on that movement as well? Yeah. I mean, one, just what an amazing and just like powerful history you shared, Nina. Like, again, snaps and just like affirmation for all of those like aunties before us who really like held it down and again can't even imagine like you know and knowing the levels of misogyny and patriarchy in our communities like what they had to work through so just like oh just like wow and I'm oh yeah so holding that right now and just thinking about like how immense the work they did I think mine is I feel like most of my stories about redress is just kind of like I think the like just like the interpersonal in terms of like knowing a lot of my aunties like a lot of the work that they would do would be right like 
something like things simple as like printing information, like like Marlene Tonai in the San Francisco Bay Area. We went to her house and she has this just like expansive collection of all the like flyers that she helped print along with mm-hmm. Pam Matsoka and lots um, lots of other folks about it's like explaining and and how they kind of went door to door to different Nikkei families and pass out the information and, and you know the the interpersonal work they took to like talk to people and sort of explain what redress is to work through the I, the shame and the not wanting to talk about it but like empowering folks be like your story is valid right and your the experience you went through doesn't doesn't deserve to be silenced right you you know and all the coaching it took to get people ready to um, speak during all of the hearings I definitely think to one of my like favorite mentors and who I've learned so much is Grace Shimizu and I think you know there's also part of the redress movement for Japanese Latin Americans and Grace Shimizu along with Becky Shibayama they've done a lot of work I think not only in moving redress for Japanese Americans but also really holding the United States accountable for the kidnapping and deportation and the loss of passports that happened during World War II for Japanese that are uh, in Latin America, specifically Peru. And so just knowing that that is being held at the helm and has been and still going on right now, um, there's going to be a press release later, this press conference later this week that, you know, talks about that. But knowing that there's still so much work in redress to be done and the people that are moving that work forward with an analysis of how redresses impacts all communities of color and is an imperative for the United States to me has just been so powerful. And I think also again, really just showing that the level of um, integrity and care and vision that a lot of these Nikkei women and femmes had for this movement. Yeah, it's really interesting that you shared that too, because I know we often tend to think of incarceration as just a solely Japanese-American event. And so it's really good to see that wider lens and how it affects those minorities and how all these events, actually some of them occurred abroad and there are all these different circumstances that were kind of intertwined. So it's really amazing that you brought that up as well. Definitely. And I think like, again, a lot of the work that, again, DK Women Femmes do is again, like kind of like uplifting the hidden histories and the part that are overlooked or purposely erased or purposely hidden. And again, like demanding that that is at the forefront because knowing that it is tied to a larger movement for liberation. So yeah, I think the work that she does and again, and knowing a lot of, you know, these organizers have continued from redress to continue to be in movement spaces, I think really speaks to that as well. Yeah, I was just thinking about how the Japanese American community is so active and advocating for other marginalized groups and continually, continually holding space for them and and yet continuing to keep them at the forefront of their fight. So with that being said, I also wanted to mention that I am one of those people that haven't really grown up learning about women's roles in the redress movement or in any incarceration related stories actually much at all. Um, So it's really interesting to me to hear how much of driving forces they were in advocating for Nikkei and beyond. And so for myself and our other listeners that might share that that experience, are there any maybe lesser known stories or other significant stories that stand out to you in some of the research that you've done? I think for me, um, again, why I think what is so important for us to think about in this moment is that redress didn't happen in a year, right? This was a years long process. And so I think again, and kind of like I was mentioning earlier about like the time it take it took, excuse me, the time it took to 
go door to door and like help Nike, like Issei, Nisei, Sansei folks being able to name their experience, right? Um, the time it took to, again, like research the laws, to build the case, right? And then I think to develop a U.S. white coalition. Um, one of my favorite stories that when I was talking with Kathy Masoka and, and some folks from NCRR, so that's the Nikkei Coalition for Redress and Reparations in LA, is that they told me, right, right this is like 70s, 80s, they would just drive up to go have meetings in San Francisco or like they'd meet halfway. And it was just so important to be like, again, bringing in so many people's perspectives and to be meeting together and to really kind of like parse out what fully redress and reparations can look like. And knowing there were so many challenges that lots of people had very different ideations or expectations. And so I think that is, I I think is an important model, an important lesson because in my family, my family got uh, redress money. But the way it was told to me is like, oh yeah, one day we woke up and we got this check and it just happened. Right. And I think that really invisibilizes again, the, the rich organizing history and the like phenomenal coalitions that Nikkei's made with themselves, um, made against diverse communities. Right. Like, you know, there's lots of examples of conservative folks, even joining in this movement in addition to other communities of color and other you know, political spectrums. And then like, you know, evolving this within a larger movement for liberation. So I think that is such an important lesson that again, it doesn't happen. And this kind of really goes into when we're talking about like, this is not a sprint, this is a marathon. That change really requires deep community shifts and it just takes so much time. And, but I think being okay with that and being willing to dig in that work and not just checking out you know, if it doesn't happen in a couple months, right? Knowing that we are transforming our communities and ourselves and to be ready to do that work. Um, that's the lesson that I think all, and then the other favorite thing too is like, they're like, y'all have internet now. Like you can send a tweet, you can insert, you know, like, you know, if we're talking about a lot of happy things that are happening in California, you know, we can like post an Instagram photo um, with demands for Governor Newsom and send them to our friends. They were literally like making newspapers and like mailing them. They had like mm. calling trees, right? So the work has changed. And I think we have access to a lot of different technologies and different systems than was before. But I think the main thing is, right, thinking about what we have as opportunities, like seeing what we have now as opportunities, but then also seeing, knowing that this work takes time has been the biggest lesson I've gotten from them. And I think is really hidden in when we look back at redress history. Nina, do you have any stories that you've come across in your research that you think a lot of people don't know about that you want to share? Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, just sort of generally, like I, I really appreciate you, Mia, for just kind of lifting up that sort of like invisible, bankless labor of like aunties printing flyers and compiling mailing lists and all this just like really unsexy work that, you know, like makes redress possible like makes you know all these other um you know kind of like social movements happen i mean i think that you know just kind of speaking like more generally just about you know like nike women's history i think that something like i've spent a lot of time i think like what i tend to focus on for my research just because um, i think to me, it's what's interesting is just looking at, you know, that kind of early history of like the Issei women and, you know, those 
communities. And I think that, you know, a lot of times, like, I think to me, why I am sort of drawn to that is because I feel like a lot of times when we talk about that history, we kind of romanticize it in some ways. And it's this kind of like sanitized, romanticized history where, you know, we kind of praise their resilience and their survival, but we do it in a way that, you know, I feel like sometimes kind of takes away like their voice and their agency. And we sort of like the way that we talk about women in our history is that we talk about them as very like voiceless, two-dimensional victims when, you know, when you actually look into that history and like what women accomplished and created that, you know, it's very much not the case. You know, and so like I think about, you know, women like, you know, these like midwives and, um, you know, women who just kind of like turned their houses into these like informal shelters for, you know, like picture brides who were like dealing with domestic violence or, you know, just these, these systems that a lot of times like we tend to, you know, just kind of assume that like violence and exploitation that women in our community are facing that is coming just sort of like from the outside. But there, you know, there's like less reflection on where that violence comes from within our own community. And so I think that, yeah, just kind of thinking about the ways that, you know, women throughout our history have kind of organized other women to, you know, provide care for each other, to provide mutual aid, to kind of be able to make their own decisions about their lives. You know, and I think that that is the legacy that, you know, we see carried on through redress and through these other movements and moments in our history, because I think, you know, there is like, there's, you know, a strength there. And I think that there's a sense of, you know, just recognizing that, you know, we accomplish things and we change history as a community. And it's not, you know, any one individual doing this, but but yes, everyone kind of sharing that labor together. Mm -hmm. I, I really like what you said. And I feel like the contributions that women, especially Issei women made, one thing that is that I feel like is really telling about that is like, I've done a fair amount of like interviews and panels and just talking to Nisei about their experiences. And the one question that will always get someone talking is tell me about your mother. That's like the one, Mm -hmm. that's like my secret weapon question that I know will get like cool stories. And I just, I think that speaks volumes because people are so impacted by the care and labor that that is put into making their life possible and therefore our life possible as the generations that come after them. So kind of speaking of that, I wanted us each to say a little bit, I know we've touched on this a little bit, but I wanted us each to say a little bit about how our own outlooks and identities and the work that we do has been shaped by Nike women who came before us. So whoever wants to go first. For me, I am just really inspired by my grandma, who, you know, she's a 93-year-old Nisei woman, um, and she still is, like, a working artist. You know, she went to art school in, like, the 50s and, you know, was, you know, just kind of pursued this career and kind of life path that wasn't necessarily open to her as, you know, this, like, child of immigrants and like a Japanese woman, you know, but she did it anyway, because that was what she loved. And that was the life that she wanted to build. And so I think that, you know, and I think there's a lot of bachans in the community who are like that, you know, who just 
kind of pursue the path that they want to make. And I think, yeah, just like for me, I think kind of the, the lesson that I take away from that is that, you know, we don't have to be who people expect us to be. You know, the more that mm-hmm. we learn about the women in our history, the more you realize that, you know, there is no one way to be Mike. You know, like you can be queer or you can be a survivor or you yeah. can be, you know, like any other identity that you hold. Um, and it doesn't make you any less a part of the community because, you know, if you learn that history and understand that history, you, know, you can see that there are ancestors in our history that that held those same identities. That's so amazing. It actually reminds me of my grandmother too, because she's also still working and works as a hairdresser. And and she actually wanted to go to music school when she was younger. And I think that kind of passion for music kind of was passed down to me because I ended up being able to go to school for music. So I'm, I'm glad that I was able to carry that on for her. And I actually was able to visit the Japanese American National Museum in uh, Little Tokyo um, with my grandparents. And we went through the one of the incarceration exhibits and it was so, such an interesting experience to watch her tear up as she was you know, walking around and looking at the exhibit and bringing back all of those memories. But the one thing that she said was, you know, once you go through something like that, you never complain kind of for the rest of your life and I'm not saying that that's completely true but I think that sentiment of being grateful is what I've taken away from my grandmother and just really appreciating the people around me um, and being grateful to have that experience from of my grandparents to learn from and those stories that they can continually share with me hopefully for more years to come. Not to hop on the grandmother train but please do. I feel like I also <laughs> like my grandma is such a badass and she's like so smart and like doesn't, but doesn't like know it. And she, I don't know, she's just always been really open with me about her experiences. And I've watched her go from like talking about her shame and stuff like that to just like now she's just like so unapologetic about it and about the power that comes with speaking about it. So yes, grandmas, we love grandmas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also feel like for me, just thinking of other Nikkei women who have inspired me, honestly, Yoshiko Uchida, who is like this children's young adult author, she was so huge for me. I cannot even describe how much I got out of reading her books. And I just don't even know what my trajectory would have been like because, (laughs) yes, oh my God, so many amazing, like I literally just... I, I understood myself more and like my community and my family. And I was like, ah, and then looking back, I'm like, whoa, that, that was super groundbreaking that she was writing that stuff at that time. I literally went to school one day dressed up as her for a school project, like oh in second grade. Oh, you did a school project in about her too. Grade. Oh my yes. God. We all had to choose, <laughs> we had to choose like someone who inspires you or something for school and write a project. And I was like, Yoshiko Uchida. And everyone was like, who is that? Never heard of her. And I'm like, you know what? Changed my life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, anyone who was writing at that time, whether it was to share with someone else or just for themselves, I think that's, that's something that's so cool, just that they were able to preserve the history, regardless of whether that was conscious or not, but just to want to document that experience somehow. Yeah. We're so lucky to to come from these smart, amazing people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mia, did you have anything to add? 
Uh, yeah, I think, well, one thing I've just been thinking about is kind of like Nina, what you were saying about that there are so many ways of being Nikkei and being a Nikkei woman and being a Nikkei femme and that it's so important to recognize, to give like voice and agency and complexity to these Nikkei women because oftentimes, you know, history doesn't allow that. I think it's so interesting because I had this experience where I was at an event and a man in our community told me I was not like good enough and valid enough to be talking about our history because I wasn't like socks Kitashima and I'm actually just like a pawn of like other Japanese men and I was like what so you know so it's just very interesting right how again this like oversimplification and this invisible invisibilization in some ways is being used to I guess like again silence and you know take away again like again the rich history of our people and then allow that to transform but I think how this kind of relates to your question is I think though I like did not take any crap from him. And I think I was able to get to that point is again, my politicization as a Nikkei started with a Nikkei identity and really interrogating that started in college. And so I think it was like reading about people like Yuri Kochiyama and again, like those activists I mentioned in the Bay Area, like Grace Shimizu, who I think really just showed me that like they have taken on empires and they have taken on these immense regimes and have never buckled under it, you know? And they had really out there, you know, they're really trying to challenge the status quo. And so when seeing them, I'm just like, who's this guy? Who Like, you're nobody, you know? Like, you're whatever. Like, I'm literally trying do something more like I'm trying to do something bigger and I believe in our community and so you're trying to take me down I'm just reminded of those like elders and ancestors who took on even bigger targets because of the love they had for our community so yeah I really think being able to uncover those histories and and I think also too something was really cool in terms of Yuri was when I went to Japan I was able to meet a Barakumin activist who had written letters to Yuri and again had found ways to bring up like the Barakumin casteism caste system and connect that to Nikkei organizing in the U.S. And that there's just so many wonderful like connections and histories that we don't always get to know of. And then in uplifting and finding those, we can again find um, more meaning and deeper connections. So yeah, that's how I was able to say F you to that guy and to be like, I've come from a lineage of badasses, so I don't need to take crap from you. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you both so much for being here today. This was such an incredible and inspiring conversation. Oh my God. No, thank you. Yeah, seriously. Thank you. It's been a joy to chat with you all and learn from you all as well. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of your stories and dropping some knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Be sure to join us for next week for our final Tadaima episode in which we will explore the topics of reconciliation and identity. This episode will be hosted by all five of us on the Yonsei team, including Yoko and myself, as well as Hiro, Matt, and Johnny. To learn more about the history behind today's episode, be sure to visit jampilgrimages.com and click on the Nikkei Rising tab. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nikkei Rising for updates on the Yonsei and other programs from Nikkei Rising as part of the Tadaima Virtual Pilgrimage series. The Yonsei podcast is made by Hiro Adeza, Michelle Hecker, Yoko Fedorenko, Johnny Narita, and Matthew Wisely with theme music by Michelle Hecker. This has been the Yonsei podcast. And it's been yawn said. <laughs> <laughs>